Good morning. Hey, it's good to be together. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts as we talk about the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And Lord willing, we are going to conclude chapter 2 today. As we're about to cover these 10 verses or so that Barbara just read, I want to give you what we'll be covering in the next few moments in this passage. So I'm going to give you, if you're someone who likes to take notes, I'm going to give you my four points, if you will. They're not really points, they're just what we're going to cover today. Here is what we're going to cover. Conviction, repentance, baptism, community. Conviction, repentance, baptism, community. That, th- these are the four things that I plan to unpack in the next few moments. And I hope that you just seeing what we're going to uncover or unpack is helpful to you. So let's begin in chapter 2 of Acts, starting in verse 37. Here's what Peter says. When the people heard, or Luke wrote this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When the people heard this, heard what? Well, if you were not with us last week or did not read the passage, that was which was a synthesized version of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, which was fire, as the kids say, let me begin where Peter concluded after pointing out that the Holy Spirit who came in a huge way, Peter then points to the prophet Joel and what was foretold, and the inauguration of the Holy Spirit and what that meant. Then Peter also quoted the psalmist David and pointed out to a prophecy that was fulfilled and confirmed by Jesus of Nazareth's resurrection. And after preaching this powerful sermon pointing to the Messiah in the Old Testament, Peter, after telling the crowd that they contributed to Jesus' death on the cross through their sin, then says in 32 and 33 of Acts 2, God has raised this Jesus to life and we were all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then skip to 36. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. After they heard Peter's sermon and proclamation of the risen Lord, the text says that they were cut to the heart. Now, to be cut to the heart, this is to be convicted. Meant to be, uh, if you look up the word convicted, it tends to say greatly troubled. When convicted, what we believe to be true has just been thrown into turmoil because of new evidence that has presented itself. Conviction is one of the most beautiful things that the Holy Spirit does, but let me start to walk through why. In John 16, 7 through 10, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, most of them who would become apostles, and he's, he's telling them what's to come, and he says, very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, Jesus says, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So here's the, here's the problem. This is the problem every week. You should never be surprised by this. We're never going to hide from this. The problem is that we have sin, and we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God when it comes to sin, and sin eradicates relationship. But belief in Jesus restores what has been destroyed. 
And that's the good news. You have the bad news that we have sinned, and it ruins our relationship. It eradicates relationship, but belief in Jesus restores what has been destroyed. So, in order to believe and trust Jesus, you first must acknowledge that sin has created a broken relationship between you and Him. Now, I'm not going to ask everyone to come up here and grab the, the microphone and say, all right, could you confess a sin? But here's what I know about you, because you're breathing. You've sinned. I've sinned. I've sinned since I drove to church. That's awful. But I've sinned. Why? Because my heart is not always pure. My heart is not always right. But the good news about the gospel is that Jesus makes me right. So as we start to believe and trust Jesus, we first acknowledge that our sin has created a broken relationship between us and God. And as Peter preaches at Pentecost and lays out from the Old Testament what has happened and God's plan all along to reconcile sinners like us back to Himself through the person and work of Jesus. So again, what was their response? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were convicted of their sin, and they wanted to know what they could do to rectify their circumstance. So I guess I need to ask you, are you a person who, when reading or hearing the Bible, tend to be convicted? Or do you just read it to kind of get through it? Or has it been a long time, or maybe have you never really experienced conviction when you've read through the words that God has written here? Conviction is a judgment of the heart to acknowledge that we are wrong in something. So, do you read or hear the Bible with an expectation that you may be convicted? Or are you like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus speaks about here in Luke 18? And, and I want you to look at the Pharisee. I want you to look at his words. I want you to look at how Jesus describes the Pharisee. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Remember that Jesus began the parable with, to some they were confident in their own righteousness. And so he describes a Pharisee that holds himself up based on effort and merit and really, if we pay attention to what he's doing here, he's just comparing himself to other people. The Pharisee's problem was that he compared himself to others rather than to Jesus. So verse 13, it's, Jesus goes on, he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, Jesus says, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This Pharisee was not convicted because he was self-righteous. Think about that for a second. He thought he was made righteous by his own work, which isn't really a thing because the Pharisee exudes pride in himself, which is a sin. You and I maybe are righteous. We are made right before God, but like the tax collector, we know that we are made righteous through the gift of our identity being superimposed by Jesus. And that's one of the good news, that's one of the points of the good news is that it's not us working to be better people, it's that God has given us Jesus's perfect record, and that's what makes us righteous. So, conviction tends to only happen to people 
who are one specific thing, teachable. Conviction happens to people that are teachable. And Mike sent me a tweet, and then I stole it. I'm like, I don't know if you were going to use it in a sermon, but I'm using it first because I'm preaching this week. By the poet Jackie Hill Perry, she tweeted this week, every foolish person I know has one dominant trait. They're unteachable. They're unteachable. So I guess you need to self-assess. Can't answer this. I don't want you to be thinking about other people. Don't think about your spouse. Don't grab their thigh. Don't do any of this stuff. But I need you to self-assess about yourself. Are you teachable? Or do you tend to assume that you can justify yourself like the Pharisee in the parable through just comparing yourself to others? My recommendation, church, is if you're going to compare yourself to anyone, compare yourself to Jesus. And then praise God that you receive his perfect record and repent. Which leads me to what Peter told the crowd who were cut to the heart to do. Peter replied in verse 38, a very well-known verse. Peter replies, repent! (laughs) I don't know if he yelled it. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's response is, repent and be baptized. And we're going to go into baptism in just a moment. But what is repentance. It means to turn around. It means you're going this way, and then all of a sudden, you've changed direction. It means to change your mind. You were once going in a certain direction, and now all of a sudden, because of God doing a work and convicting you, you've now turned around, and you've changed your way of thinking. And you've now done a 180, physically, mentally, and spiritually. That's what repentance is. Here's a definition according to my Logos biblical software. It says, to change one's life based on complete change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. Now, even that, even when I first read that, I didn't love that so much because I think people can take a change of attitude to mean something that they can do themselves, which I have absolutely changed my attitude on some things. I used to like the Dodgers, not no more. Thank you. I was waiting for that. See, that did not require the Holy Spirit or dependence upon God. But what is this concerning? Is this concerning a political view or a sports team? No, it says regarding sin and righteousness. And the Holy Spirit, who is a gift of God, from God, and is God, convicts sinners of their sin and makes known that righteousness is only attainable through reception of Jesus and His finished work. Ray Steadman, pastor in, uh, in Palo Alto for many years, I quoted him last week, I'm going to quote him again. He says, most people think repentance means that you feel sorry and you begin to cry. That has nothing to do with repentance. You may feel sorry, you may begin to cry, but it does not mean necessarily that you've repented. Repent is a word which means to change your mind, to change your thinking. In the Greek, I'm going to totally butcher these, that is exactly what it means, metanoi changed your mind. We get our English word from the Latin pentur means to think, and the prefix re means again. So, think again. You've been thinking that everything was right with you. Well, think again. You have been thinking that Jesus is nothing but a great teacher, a great prophet, but He is not the Son of God. He is not the Lord of glory, the Lord of all the earth. Well, think again. Repent. Change your mind. Get in tune with reality. Line up with the things that really are the way that they are, is what Peter is saying. You've been kidding yourself. You've been deluded. You've been fooled. Well, change your mind. That is the first thing. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, repent and put Him where He belongs 
in your life. I've said this many times before, but repentance, no matter how often a dude stands on the street corner with a sign, repentance is not a threat. Repentance is an invitation to be intimate with your God. So first comes conviction. Then the proper response, if the Holy Spirit is involved, is repentance. Someone who's unwilling to repent is someone who probably does not have the Spirit of God in them. So look at verse 38. Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're cut to the heart. They're convicted. They're, they're beat down a little bit by the truth of the fact that they were a part of killing Jesus, but Jesus was raised to life, and he ascended, and he told them to go and tell others of what had happened. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. I think there are a few misconceptions regarding baptism. That in order for repentance to be proven, you must be baptized. The problem with this is that that could be a work. That could be something you've done physically to justify yourself rather than a response of faith because you've received God's grace. Baptism, as we say often, is simply an outward expression of an inward commitment. But the act of baptism, and I need you to hear this, if you've been taught differently, I'm so sorry, the act of baptism does not save you. Justify, it doesn't justify you, it doesn't forgive you of your sins, only God's gift of grace expressed through faith in Jesus can make you forgiven. And I think we may misinterpret what Peter was trying to communicate here pretty often. We may read this as, repent and be baptized so Jesus can forgive you of your sins. And that is definitely not what is being communicated. So here's another way of reading what was just said. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of your forgiveness of sins. Respond in repentance and immersion into Christ your Lord because of His gift of grace. But also, and I don't want you to hear that being baptized is something that you can take or leave. This isn't something you ought to treat like a choice. The real question, if you've committed to Christ, if you've been cut to the heart, if you've responded in repentance, your next step in obedience is the symbol of your commitment, which is baptism. So the question isn't, shouldn't you be baptized? It's really, if you've trusted Jesus, why wouldn't you be baptized? And generally, the answer to why you wouldn't be baptized, if people are honest, is because they haven't really trusted Jesus. They haven't really been cut to the heart. They really haven't repented. And they may want to get from Him things like His gifts, or the church, or the community, but to really commit to be sealed like a wedding for a marriage, as baptism is to following Jesus, this just might be too hard for some. It might just be too real to really show others what you outwardly believe. Now, baptism is the dying to yourself and being resurrected in Christ. It's a new creation being made alive by the person and work of Jesus. That's why we do it, not because you become more saved if you do it or has anything to do with your sins being forgiven. It's a symbol, not a catalyst. Baptism is an ordinance, like communion, which we're going to partake in, in in a little while, that Jesus gave to his disciples and followers. Communion reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. Baptism expresses our new identity of being found in Jesus. But it's something, unfortunately, and the reason that I'm covering and spending so much time on baptism is because baptism over the past 2,000 years has split churches 
It's broken fellowship, unfortunately, because people think they know the importance or the lack thereof of importance better than someone else, or really for thousands of years, people have been arguing over the mode of baptism. We at Church of the Valley, we practice immersion. So if you were here a few weeks ago when we did baptisms, we put people underneath the water in the glorified barbecue slash uh, hot tub, and we believe that it is what the word baptizo, which is the Greek word, means. And it's what Jesus practiced and exemplified. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Jesus' baptism. People tend to know this story. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that's a river, to be baptized by John, John uh, the Baptist, or the baptizer. But John tried to deter him. Real quick, the first time I ever baptized someone, I read this wrong, and I said, and John tried to deter him. (laughs) I was so nervous. (laughs) And John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness, Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Now, real quick, when uh, Mark and Lynn got baptized, did the heavens open? No, they didn't. But you symbolized your commitment to Jesus, and when Jesus did this, it showed that this is something that we follow him in. Why? because he says we do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, hear me. If you get one point when it comes to baptism, here's what I want you to understand. Baptism does not initiate salvation. It illustrates it. It does not initiate it. It does not make you more saved. It is just an illustration of the salvation that God has already given you. So, don't assume it's not important Just don't treat baptism as its ultimate, because the reality is when we talk about our Christian faith, a lot of us go, well, I was baptized. And then as we talk that way, what we're really saying without meaning to is we're justified because we got into a tub in front of other people. Weird. So don't assume it's not important, because faith in Christ through the gift of grace is what is ultimate, but this is a symbol of what we believe. But notice it says in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, the text says, he came out of the water, out of the water, which for many signifies that he was immersed, especially considering they're in the Jordan River when this took place. Now, some of you were baptized, and I'm not going to, you don't have to show, show of hands, but some of you were baptized by sprinkling. And the only question I'd have regarding that baptism, just like if we have regarding the baptism of immersion is, did you actually believe and trust Jesus when you did it? Or did you just take a glorified bath or shower in front of people? See, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the emphasis now, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't mention tongues of fire or speaking in tongues. He just points out that our response of repentance through faith will be confirmed through the gift of the Holy Spirit, not what He can do, but who He is. Now, listen, I'm not a more important Christian because I have the third person of the Trinity inside of me. I am simply a Christian because the third person of God resides in me, not because I earned Him, but because God gifted Him through the opening eyes my eyes to His grace and giving me the faith to respond in repentance. 
And then in verse 39, Peter goes on, he says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Notice that Peter points to the fact that anyone who has the opportunity, or that anyone at all has the opportunity to be called by God. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, rich, poor, physical specimen, handicapped, smart, unintelligent. The gospel only seems to divide two types of people, and this might hurt for a second. Here are the two types of people that the gospel seems to divide, proud and humble. That's what it divides. See, the proud are self-reliant, not Christ-reliant. The proud are self-righteous, not made righteous by Christ. The proud want to earn. The humble simply receive, and knowing that they are not deserving of what they've received. Let me say this again. I hope you hear me. No one brings anything to the table when it comes to your salvation. I'm reminded of the wonderful quote. I quote it all the time. I just think it's so good. Uh, Robin, we should put it in the hallway. It is this good by Jonathan Edwards. Here's what he says. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That is what we contribute to our salvation. And how good is the God that we serve and love and know because he gifted us salvation rather than we earned it. And when we admit and receive this news, we then can be grateful, we can be thankful, we can be humble to accept the fact that salvation through Jesus' work is a gift, and it's not a discount, it's not a reward for being a good person, because no one is good but God. Verse 40, with many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, I'd like to point out that we don't have everything Peter said at Pentecost written in this passage, but we have the points that the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand and is profitable upon our salvation, our justification, our being made right before God, and our sanctification, which is our, our, our spiritual growth, our willingness to continue to follow Jesus and start to look more like Christ. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, generally, when we talk about the sermon at Pentecost, what we tend to focus on is the results. So, here's the result of this sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit, who came in this big, powerful way to make the Holy Spirit's power known. 3,000 people came to faith. Now, some commentators believe that this was just counting the men, and that many more women and children also repented and were baptized today. But let's just, let's go conservatively. All of a sudden, the church of the living God has gone from 120 at most to 3,120, if not many more than that. Than that. Now, I'm in ministry. I, I get paid to study the Bible. Thank you. And this is a ministry nightmare for those who are attempting to shepherd and lead the people who have committed to Christ. Because already, we're, we're trying to get to know everyone that's here. We want to know who you are. We care about you. We want you to be able to grow. We want to be there for your needs. We want to point you to the gospel. We want to rebuke you if necessary. Yeah, that's part of our job with the Word of God. But, like, there's not 3,120 people in here. And if 3,000 extra people showed up next Sunday, that would be rough. And this is what they're experiencing. 
It's one thing to oversee 120 people to, over, to help them grow. It's another thing to have a small stadium of people to care for and help in their walk with the Lord. So what did they do? Community groups, obviously. No, that's not exactly what they did. But Luke points out what we need to pay attention to. Because when we read this passage, and I know I've done this many times, so it's kind of on me, we often break up this passage. Peter's preaching at Pentecost. All this great stuff's happening. 3,000 people come to faith. And then we go, all right, and here's how the early church started. But there's no break in the book. 3,000 people come to Christ, and we study the early church separately. But now you've got 3,120 people. And what did they do together? Here's what it says in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They, who? The Spirit-indwelled believers of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word, which was primarily made up of just the left side of your Bible, the Old Testament, which Peter did an amazing job of connecting the real-time realities of Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecies and what was foreseen many years before. We often treat the Old Testament like an old iPhone. We ought to trade it in, but the Old Testament is the prequel to the coming of the Messiah. And it's powerful to understand and to know our God better. But when you read it, when you read the Old Testament, just encouragement, don't try to fulfill it. You can't. Read it and look for Jesus. Look for the gospel of grace. Look at the world as it unfolded and the need that was known and the place where Jesus would come and fulfill that need. Luke also says that this early megachurch devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, I had the opportunity to study with an elder of a church down in LA, a church plant this past week on FaceTime about fellowship. And I think we often call anytime we're around other believers, all right, we're like, oh, I was fellowshipping. Who said this? Be honest. You're just around other believers. You're like, yeah, I'm fellowshipping. Okay, good. Spencer and Laura are the only non-liars. Got it. But like Inigo Montoya said in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it means. Fellowship means holding all things in common. In other words, sharing together. They begin to know and to love one another, and here are 3,000 people suddenly added to a little group of about 120. Most of them, think about this for a second, were probably strangers at this time. It's not like they had seen each other before in the pews. And many of them had come from other parts of the world into Jerusalem for Pentecost, for this occasion. They didn't know each other. But now they're all one in Christ, and they begin to love each other, and they start to talk to each other, and they start to find out what each other has been thinking and how they've been reacting to things, and they start to share their problems and their burdens and their needs, and they talk to each other together, and crazy thing happens, they start to pray together. And there was this wonderful sense of community and of commonality, of belonging to each other. That is fellowship which is intended in the life of the body of Christ. So again, Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. This doesn't mean they went to Panera a lot. 
Some take this to just mean eating meals together, which definitely took place in the first century, but I believe this signifies more of a worshiping together, like we're doing today, and being reminded of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and what difference it means to our eternity. That's what we'll be remembering today in just a short while as we partake in communion. And they did it together. They were devoted to it. They, like the writer of Hebrews points out in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, I, I used ESV for this, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Meeting together was vital for the early church and vital to us today. We need connection with other believers. And some of you are like, no, 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 I don't. Yes, you do. There's no castaway Christians in eternity, guys. We need to be with one another, not just so we can grow alongside others, but so God can be glorified in the fact that, guess what? We're not all the same with the same understandings of things, and yet God, as He binds a people, a family together in His will and His grace, God is glorified and He's pleased by the connection of His people worshiping together. And lastly, Luke points out that the early church is devoted to prayer a connection with God, and hopefully in fellowship. And that prayer is taking place together with other believers. But prayer to God through dependence and connection to Him is vital for our spiritual lives. So, constant conversation I've had, and I'm just going to apply it to this passage. You've heard me share this before, but as a pastor for I don't even know how many years, there, there has been this constant thing where people come to me and they just tell me how they're doing, and it tends to not be great spiritually. And they'll just say things to me like, Pastor, I just, I just don't feel that close to God. And so I do a bit of a survey with them. I go, okay, how's your time in God's Word, the Apostles' teachings? Well, I haven't been reading it lately. Okay, interesting. All right, how about being around other believers to encourage you? Fellowship. Uh, it's been a while. Hmm, all right. Have you been worshiping on Sundays lately, breaking bread with one another? No, it's been a few months. I, I just listen to podcasts. Okay, how's your prayer life to God and with other believers? Prayers. Uh, if I'm honest, non-existent currently. I have no idea why you don't feel close to God. And while Luke was just describing what the early church did and was devoted to, I think we today can see the prescription of what a healthy idea it is to be devoted to these things as well for our spiritual growth and makeup. Verse 20, uh, 43, Luke writes, everyone in this early church was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to, get, to give to anyone who had need. The beginning of that verse, some translations say, and fear came upon every soul. What was happening was unexplainable naturally, and so God was doing amazing things through the apostles to point to His glory. And their response was to be together and to share what they had because their priorities were no longer about getting ahead financially or trying to be impressive, but viewing people through the lens of the gospel, which means that every soul has worth that is created in God's image. Verse 46, 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People would be acting like they ain't got time for church. The early church met together every day. And they had the same amount of hours in a day that we all have. Wait, no, they didn't have electricity. So they went to bed when the sun went down. So they had less time, and yet they still prioritized being together. Why? Because the gospel changed their minds about their own lives. And the text says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is one of my personal convictions. We don't try to manufacture what God does. He is the one who adds people to his family. We get to be a part of it, but we are not the one who gets credit. Uh, we have a beautiful little baby. We were not planning to have a beautiful little baby, but God gets the credit. So thank you, Lord. That's awesome. We love knowing that God is the one who brings the growth, that God is the one who decides if he's going to grow a church and build a church to look more like his son. And so our responsibility as God's church I'm going to give you a word that you're going to hear a lot over the next few weeks, months, possibly years. Our responsibility in God's church, Christians, is to be faithful. To be faithful, to study God's word, not to just get through it, not just to read it to say, oh, I did my daily devotion, but to be faithful, to study it in the context in which it's written, to, to wonder about who God is, to do things with Him. Uh, my dear friend Jason and Kyle, they study the Bible at 5.30 in the morning, which literally makes no sense to me because I don't even think the Lord's awake yet, but they study together, and when they're reading the Scriptures, as they study the book of Romans, when they read something that's hard, because there's a lot of stuff that's difficult in this, guys. As they study something and they, come to a, they see something that's difficult, what do they do? Well, they pray about it. They look at commentators. They ask people that they trust, but they already have an understanding of who God is. So just because something says something that doesn't necessarily uh, sound exactly the way they would view God, they don't just jump to the conclusion that the way they view God is wrong because we see who God is through Scripture interpreting Scripture. So we ought to be faithful to study God's Word. We ought to be faithful to be in fellowship with one another, to be faithful to break bread and worship corporately each week, to be faithful to be praying and lifting up petitions to God because He can hear them, and He hears us, and He wants to, to engage with us in prayer. And God will do His work to bring people to Himself. Sometimes it's obvious in conviction and repentance Sometimes we as a church see it in someone's baptism, but the most important thing we can do as a church is to be faithful and devoted to the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. June 1st, 2010, I, I'm sure most of you have heard the story, but haha, you get to hear it again. I'm sitting uh, in front of my house. And I get a phone call, and it's from a police officer, and he says, what's your relationship to Mike Riley? And I said, well, that's my father. And he said, I'm very sorry to let you know, but we found him dead on his bathroom floor. And I was pretty angry with God in this moment, and I'm going to skip some of the things that I yelled at my Lord because I probably shouldn't say them in church. But I was, I was upset. And 
I started to wrestle with God, and I started to think about the realities that I had shared with my father who Jesus was, and my dad put his hand out, and I remember this on a specific occasion, and he said, Tim, I don't want to believe. And so when he died, I started to have this realization that not everyone who's at a funeral goes to heaven, because my dad wanted nothing to do with the Lord, and why would the Lord force him to spend eternity with him if he wanted nothing to do with him? And so I was pretty angry, but I started to realize that my responsibility was to share with him, to be honest with him, to point him to the reality that Jesus is Lord. My dad wanted nothing to do with it. And so I had this moment of realizing that God's very softly spoke to me and reminded me, and, and not audible voice, but in an impression, hey, Tim, um, salvation is a gift for me. You can't force it on anyone. You can't force anyone to receive it. And it started to do this work in me, and even though my father's death was hard, and Aaron and I drove out to Arizona, and we picked up his stuff, and that was its own story in and of itself, and it was difficult, God started to do a work in me and started to stir in me something. And here's what He stirred in me, and here's why I bring up this story with this passage. Because up until June 1st, 2010, I would pretty much tell you I was a Christian, I'd pretty much tell you that I was a faithful follower of Jesus because I went and I spoke and I told other people about Him, and I would go to Yogurt Land and share Christ with teenagers that I would meet, and it, that was my jam. But I think it was on June 1st, 2010, where I finally started to realize that my belief hadn't actually led to repentance. I believed, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life I couldn't. He died a death I should have died. He physically rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, born of a virgin. The Bible is God's inherent word as it was originally written. All of this I believe, but I hadn't actually bowed down. And it was in that moment when my father passed that I started to realize, Lord, I haven't surrendered to you. I haven't been willing to really change direction and change my mind. You told me to come follow you, and instead, I asked you to come follow me. And so, that, mor that uh, early morning, or late morning, I remember praying as I was mourning the loss of my dad, and in that moment, I repented. And I'll tell you what, everything changed. I still believed the things that I believed, but now all of a sudden, they meant a lot more to me. My priorities changed. My selfishness changed. I'm still selfish. I'm still prideful. But God started to do a work in me that was the beginning of something that I'm so grateful for, even though it was really hard to get where I currently am. And so here's the big question I have for you. If you've truly repented, have you surrendered to Christ? Or are you still trying to earn His affection? Have you truly repented? Have you changed direction? Have you not just apologized to the Lord, but realized and owned your sin and said, God, I need you to be the one who changes me? Or are you assuming that just acknowledging Him is enough? Surrender, and here's why I bring up that word, it requires the Holy Spirit. And so I hope as I ask that question to you, have you surrendered to Christ? Are you willing and have you repented that you were able to see and respond in such a way that only the Holy Spirit can do in you, which is to change direction in your heart? Some of us think repentance only takes place when we come to Christ. The reality is I repent every day. And God is so gracious and so loving to just say, come. The analogy I've always loved is I tend to walk away from Him daily and I start to run away from him, if I'm honest. And as soon as I turn around, he's right there to meet me. And so, church, have you turned around?
Malik, would you come on up? And we're going to respond in musical worship and in communion and an opportunity to do takeaways and in closing. But the real question is, have you really turned to Christ? Because some of us have said we have, but we're kind of frustrated because we don't feel close to Him. Well, maybe you're continuing to walk away and you just haven't turned around in a long time. Would you turn around and realize that God is right there to meet you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and women and children that are on this campus today. Thank you for those that are watching online. And God, I pray most importantly, more importantly than anything else, Lord, that you would be glorified in what was spoken today and the music that we're about to sing and the time of communion that we're about to take, partake in. But God, I ask that you draw people to yourself. Some of us have ran from you. Some of us have tried to do this in our own strength. Some of us have tried to justify ourselves by what we do like that Pharisee. God, like the tax collector, would we just bow a knee and beat our chest and say, Lord, I don't deserve you, but God, I am so grateful for you. God, thank you that you're a work amongst your people and thank you that when we're willing to turn, you're willing to receive it. No matter how bad we've been, no matter what we've done, God, may we be a people that constantly repent and turn back to you, God, because there's, it's not the safest place, Lord, but it is the most beautiful place to be amongst your will. And your will is for us to be in right relationship with you. So God, thank you. Would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen.